this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are, of course, making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We are right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, famous discourse ever given in the history of humanity. And Jesus wants to talk to us this morning about, wait for it, loopholes. Loopholes. Now, what is a loophole? I could give you the etymology and where it comes from in the Middle Ages, which would interest only me and only bore you. But, but, but according to the interweb somewhere, here is what a loophole is. A loophole is an ambiguity or inadequacy in a system which can be used to circumvent or otherwise avoid the purpose implied or explicitly stated of the system. In other words, you get one up on the man, right? That's a loophole. And let's, let's be honest, we all love us a loophole, right? Like the guy who ran for political office by legally changing his name to none of the above, none of the above, or I, I personally love that one. Um, some of you have figured out how to rack up your scowl miles by purchasing gift cards and reselling the gift cards and buying the gift cards with the gift cards. You know who you are in here. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the people of Israel were the masters of the religious loophole. You see, they wanted to appear meticulous. They wanted to appear fastidious in terms of being obedient to the law. They wanted to be technical about it. They wanted to check a box. But in reality, their hearts were far, far from God in terms of his heart for them, the heart of the law, the the pleasing him. They, they were much more interested in appearing, wanting to appear righteous while all the while circumventing through some loophole what God had clearly said. Now that's part of the backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount. Because as Jesus has invited his followers, the crowds, into the life of flourishing, into the blessed life, he's been giving us, as we've walked through the sermon, this vision of what life in the kingdom looks like. How, how happiness is truly found by aligning ourselves and our priorities with the values of the kingdom, with the values of God. But then he drops this little verse in, in chapter 5, verse 20, when he says this. He says, but I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And you just have to know how that landed on the people, right? That was the earth-shattering kaboom. That was the shot across the bow. That was a, that was a shocking word. Because after all, what, what is our stereotype of the Pharisees? Well, they're the, they're the goody two-shoes, right? The law keepers. They're the know-it-all kid on the Polar Express. Remember him with the glasses? Complaining the kid doesn't have a ticket and always telling on somebody. And, you know, that, that's our picture. That's our vision of the Pharisees, that they took the law too seriously. However, what we've been seeing through the sermon is not that they took the law too seriously. It's just that they didn't take it seriously enough. For them, it was something merely external to appear right and good and wholesome in the eyes of the people but inwardly they were corrupt. In other words, they were doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And so we saw last week that Jesus begins to talk to the people and to us 
about what life in the kingdom, righteousness in the kingdom really looks like. And he, ta- he starts with the sixth and seventh commandments, adultery and murder. And I think one of the reasons he starts with those is because they're so easy to check off, right? Didn't commit adultery this week, Pastor Paul. Um, didn't commit murder this week, Pastor Paul. Congratulations, you're doing well. But what Jesus is wanting to show us and showed us, and we saw this last week, is that it's, it's the inward is, shows up in the outward. Sin is just not a matter of the externals and the formalities. It's something that's rooted in the depths of the heart. And that the only righteousness that pleases God is the righteousness that flows out of a changed heart, a transformed heart. That's what he means when he says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, this morning, Jesus is going to address two more issues in our life. And if we think that he was kind of getting nosy last week, he really pokes the stick in our soul this week. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 37. If you're able to, I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to read God's word together. Matthew 5, 31, Jesus is speaking. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Father, we know that these are hard words. Because they, they really get into the depths of our souls, our hearts, our lives, our relationships. And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the capacity to have ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, we bring ourselves under your word. And so please have your way with us. Please have your way with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your seats. I've entitled this sermon, Loopholes, Commitments, and Words. Oh my, right? And we may think on the surface, what in the world does this teaching on divorce and adultery have to do with keeping our O's? What, what, what is all that about? And we're going to hopefully make that clear. And so there, there's two points, two headings that we're going to sort of group everything under this morning. And here they are. We're going to first of all talk about keeping our word in marriage. And secondly, keeping our word in relationships. So we're going to start with marriage. And let's look at what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you. Now, just a reminder of what's going on here. Remember, as we saw earlier in the sermon, that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
So what Jesus is not doing is saying, here's what was said in the Old Testament. It was wrong. Now let me tell you correctly what you're to know. Neither is he setting aside the law, okay? He's, he's, he's not denigrating the law. Rather, remember, what he, one of, part of what he's doing is that he's correcting a misinterpretation and a misapplication of the law by the religious leaders. He's wanting to show that, hey, you've heard that it was said by these guys, do this and don't do this. But I want to tell you, in essence, God's heart in these commandments, how these things are ultimately fulfilled in me, my person, my work, Jesus meaning, and, and, and how, these, how, how your own leaders have led you astray. Because James tells us very clearly, not many should aspire to be teachers. Why? Because there is a stricter judgment. That there is a, there is a great burden, whatever, whatever capacity we find ourselves in as leaders or as teachers, which is, which is many of us, right? Or all of us in some, in some form, right? Whether we're parents or, or otherwise, that we have a great responsibility. We have a great stewardship. We have a great trust. And Jesus is wanting to speak to how the leaders have led the people far astray. And so, so what he does here is he's quoting from Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 is, one, is the only time in the Old Testament which speaks about divorce and the regulation of divorce uh, between two people. Now understand, the, 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 the metaphor of divorce is used often and throughout the Old Testament in a variety of contexts, but in terms of the stipulations, Deuteronomy 24 is it. And so let, let, let's read right from that passage, right? Deuteronomy 24, 1, it's on the screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Let me stop there. That phrase, some indecency. It's so one of the words, if, if, if a man finds some indecency in his wife, he's, he can issue her a certificate of divorce. That some indecency, most scholars think, is, prob- is some sexual violation of some nature, adultery, some sexual indiscretion, um, sexual activity outside the context of marriage. And Moses is saying, when that happens you can biblically issue someone a certificate of divorce. That's the original context. However, that wasn't the actual practice of the Pharisees. Now, if you want to see what the Pharisees were doing to this verse and to this passage, flip over to Matthew 19. So in Matthew 19, and and, and this is important, context is crucial, there were two schools of interpretation among the Pharisaic tradition, okay? There were the liberals and the conservatives, aren't there always, right? So, so the conservatives, Shamil, they, they believed in sort of the, tri- the strict traditional reading of this verse. Marriage is not, a, I mean, divorce is not allowed except in matters of, of unfaithfulness, sexual unfaithfulness. Now, not that divorce is commanded, but that divorce is allowed. And then there were the more liberal Hillel schools, which basically looked at this, and they really focused on that phrase, if she finds no favor in his eyes. 
And, and this was sort of the equivalent, the pharisaical equivalent of no-fault divorce, right? You can divorce your wife for any and every reason. She doesn't please you. She doesn't, she, she doesn't do whatever you want. You know, she's not fulfilling her responsibilities at home or whatever. I mean, there was some just craziness. Divorce was rampant in the Israelite community. And what happens is the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're trying to draw him in to this debate. And listen to what happens in Matthew 19. Again, these texts are on the screen. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, there it is, any cause. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So though they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Just, this isn't even in the sermon notes, it just dawned on me. <laughs> what a great cultural apologetic. Because when Jesus is challenged on an issue, where does even the God of the universe appeal to? his word. And that should be a, a, a marker, a, a, that should be a, a, something that we observe and imitate, that when we are bombarded with all sorts of ideas and cultural forms, it will be very easy to be seduced into all that back and forth and give and take. But ultimately, it's the word of God that has the authority in the life of the believer. So, but that phrase, any cause, this is where they wanted to trip Jesus up. Divorce in the Israelite culture was rampant, it was capricious, it was arbitrary, it could be for any and all reasons, and guess who took the brunt of that sort of liberal approach to marriage and divorce? It was women. They were the ones exposed, they were the ones harmed, they were the ones that were set outside the camp, so to speak. I mean, to be divorced in that culture as a woman was near a death sentence. And so they were abusing, this, this was the loophole, right? This was the loophole. They were abusing the original provision from Deuteronomy 24 and had made it a sort of free-for-all. And Jesus reminds them this is not the way God intended it. And he quotes from Genesis 2, which, of course, is not good enough for the Israelites, I mean, for the Pharisees. They retort, so look, let's look back at Matthew 19. Well, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So here, here, is, here is what Jesus is saying, I believe. I believe he is echoing what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. Deuteronomy 24.1 says, 24, says you can issue a certificate of divorce if there's been unmarital faithfulness, not commanded, but it's allowed. And he reiterates that provision, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality, porneia, Obviously, where we get our word pornography, but it means all sorts of illicit sexual activity outside the context of a monogamous marriage. 
Jesus is simply affirming the Old Testament teaching. When he says that this was only because of an allowance for hardness of heart, what he means is that, obviously, adultery was not a part of God's original plan. Divorce was not a part of God's original plan. But because of the hardness of heart, because of sin, because of the messiness and fracture of relationship, there is this provision in the law that allows this to happen to protect the innocent spouse. So you could say it this way, okay? There are a lot of ways to say it. One way is all divorce is a result of sin in some form or capacity. And those of you who were here who have been a part of that, maybe it was your, your parents, maybe it's your children, maybe it's you, you know that these things are complex and that they're in some way, some capacity, sin was involved in the destruction of this marriage. So all divorce is a result of sin. However, according to Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, and then Matthew 5 from Jesus, not all divorces are sinful. That, that's an important distinction to make. So, so, so look back for just a second at Matthew 5. I think you could also say from this passage, not only are all divorces not sinful, but neither are all remarriages. All right, so let's go back to verse 32 in Matthew 5. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, there's, there's the clause, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Because I think this passage has been widely misunderstood by many and has been made to say some things that it was not intended to say. So, for example, some have interpreted Matthew 5.32 to say that remarriage is always sinful. Or any person that marries someone who has been divorced is committing sin. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. See, Jesus is assuming, and the law assumed, everyone assumed in that culture, you're going to remarry if you're divorced. If you were a woman, you had no choice. That was part of your provision. That was part of, part of the means by which you were protected. It was assumed that you would remarry. There was no other way to survive. That term makes her commit adultery. The, the, the object of the action it's in the passive, is the woman, meaning you victimize her. When you divorce her and send her away, and there is no biblical grounds for it, you have set her up in an impossible position where she's going to have to remarry. And so thus, what you've done is that not only have you severed a one flesh relationship, but you have forced her into a position where she has to establish another one flesh relationship. I don't think Jesus is saying that you shouldn't remarry or that, that that woman shouldn't remarry or that if she remarried that she should forever be branded as an adulteress. You may hear people say that. I don't think that's the point at all. He's simply saying that by wrongly divorcing her, you have put her in an untenable spiritual situation, making her do something outside of God's original design. Guys, Pat, uh, the Apostle Paul, 
I believe, makes it crystal clear that someone who has been wrongly divorced can remarry, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. Okay, I think that means bound to the marriage and thus free to remarry. God has called you to peace. Now, I can say something with great certainty. If you did not come in here this morning with any questions about divorce or remarriage, I'm certain that you were probably leaving with some, okay? Let's be honest. I think of all the situations, pastoral care situations we've dealt with the pastoral team leaders over the last quarter of a century that I've been here, the issues of divorce and remarriage are by far the most difficult, are by far the most complex. Are, are by far the most complicated. Um, there's many, many in here find yourself connected to that in some way. Maybe you've been wrongly divorced. Maybe you've wrongly divorced someone. M- maybe, maybe you've wrongly remarried or rightly remarried. Or maybe you have a, 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 a situation where there is complexities of of marriages and remarriages and spouses. And I I just want to say, I want to recognize that that's part of the fabric of our humanness, of our humanity. We bring our stuff, who we are, and we submit that to God. And there's, there's, so knowing all of that, let me say about four or five things that hopefully kind of be some stakes in the ground, um, because Clearly, we can't talk about everything that could be contained in this passage. So, so, so number one, let me say this. If you are married this morning, okay, to your spouse, regardless of how you got there, regardless of whether you were a Christian or non-Christian or divorced or remarried, whatever, it is God's will for you to be married. It is God's will for you to pursue your spouse. It is God's will for you to remain faithful to the person you are married to. It doesn't mean that there may not be some unfinished business in your past that needs to be dealt with in some way or the other, but it's God's will for you to be a one flesh relationship with your spouse. In other words, some people would say, well, if you're wrongly remarried, it means you were wrongly divorced. You need to divorce that person and go back with this person. You don't, that, that just makes a terrible situation even more tel- terrible, can I use that word, right? So, so pursue your spouse. Number two, and I think this is probably one of the main points of this passage, if you are in a difficult marriage, and assuming that there's no other marital unfaithfulness happening like Jesus talks about, but you're just unhappy. You know, you just wish for a different life, a different wife, a different situation, you know, you've grown tired. Remember, adultery is often way more than about sex, right? Adultery is about covetousness, envisioning yourself in another life with another person in another way. But if you're just in a marriage where you're generally unhappy, don't look for loopholes. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't come to the text and I've been involved in pastoral care situations where people seemed much more intent on finding a technical way from the Bible to justify what they were doing 
rather than simply receiving the very clear and plain teaching of what Jesus is saying here. If you were in a difficult marriage, God would have you not look for a loophole, but to fight for that marriage, to advocate for that marriage, to spend less time trying to figure out how to get out and more time how to ground yourself in. That's, that's, that's number two. Number thir third thing I would say, some of you find yourself genuinely in a really hard place this morning. You're unsure about your marital status, and by that I mean there may be some sort of a, some form of abuse happening. You may suspect your spouse is unfaithful. You're, you're wrestling with things that don't neatly fit into any of these verses. And let me just say, this is why God has given us the body of Christ. This is why God has given us pastors and elders and shepherds and community group leaders to work through these complexities together. Guys, we know this, you know it from personal experience, you know it from other people. The, the, the amount of scenarios that are generated by, by divorce and remarriage, I mean, so missionaries going into foreign cultures oftentimes have to face the fact that what do you do when a man has multiple wives? What do you do with that? I have no idea, so I'm not even going to answer that right now, right? Okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, these are the sorts of things that, as pray for us, as pastors and elders, we have to sift and think through and, and, and weigh under the authority of God in his word. Please know also, this is why the elders and pastors for the last year or two have been working among the three congregations, Four Oak East, Four Oaks Midtown, on a, on a policy, on a theological position paper of divorce and remarriage that would unify us, that would get us on the same page, that we would publish to make clear to you. Lord willing, we anticipate wrapping that up in the coming season. And once we do, not only will we publish it, but we'll have an opportunity. We'll have some sort of equip night or teaching time where we will teach through that. I think it would be well worth your while. Last point before we leave this point, okay? Last thing I'll say about this. It'd be very easy and I think this, is, this might get hit where most of us probably are. Or, 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 or if we're going to be anywhere on this spectrum, here's, here's where we might be. Oh, Pastor Paul, no problem. I, I, I'm committed to my marriage. I'm not going to divorce. I'm not going to commit adultery. But I'm kind of just riding this one out. I'm, I'm, you know, my wife and I, my husband and I, we're married a long time, and we just realize, you know, the magic's gone, we're just sort of roommates, we're on these separate but parallel train tracks, and we're not going to divorce because our kids and our grandkids, and I mean, we know and God says it, you know, but, but, we're, but, uh, but fundamentally, we're just riding this one all the way. Can I just say that is just as dishonoring to God? Because you have made a commitment before God to be one flesh, to pursue relationship, to pursue intimacy, to fan into flame the gift of marriage. And so just because you can check the box and say, okay, no adultery, no divorce for us. And guys, let me say this. This is 
this is a, a huge temptation for those in the Christian community. I do not believe that is honoring to God. Yes, marriage changes in all ways as couples get older and change, of course. But my conviction is if you are not pursuing oneness, if you're not cultivating that marital intimacy for as long as you have breath, as both of you have breath, that's not honoring to God. And so, so let that all just kind of settle on your soul a little bit. Know that, and I'm going to say this at the end of this sermon too, but I'll say it now, a prerequisite for the gospel of grace is not that you figure all this out and fix all the problems in your life and, and sweep all this under the rug. That's not, that's not the prerequisite for the gospel of grace. The prerequisite for the gospel of grace is that what? You know you need grace. And for some of you, that may just be the point of saying this morning, you know, Pastor Paul, I made a lot of mistakes. And there's been a lot going on. And I don't know how to fix everything. I don't even know all the directions to go from here. But I know I need Jesus. Jesus is ready to receive you. You do not have to clean yourself up this morning before coming to him. Come to me all of ye who are weary and heavy laden. And what does Jesus say? I will give you rest. All right, second point. Keeping our word in marriage, but then Jesus transitions to keeping our word in relationships. And here, we're going to see how both of these things are tied very closely together. All right, so go back to verse 33 in Matthew 5. Jesus, again, is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is sort of a quote, a, a, a mashup of Old Testament text, right? And here are a couple of Old Testament texts that, that Jesus is probably thinking about. Leviticus 19, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 32, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, we, we live in a culture where words are fast and furious, right? It's easy to say anything, anywhere, at any time, online, here, there, everywhere. And oftentimes, let's be honest, words don't often mean a lot in our culture. Not true in ancient culture. Sometimes your word was all you had. This is why, and just, if, again, do a word study at some point, all the times in the Old and New Testament where God talks about speaking truth or being true or having truth in the inmost parts. And this is not only because that's a prerequisite for any healthy, trusting relationship, it is, but it's primarily because what? God is truth. There is no impure way in God. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And the Old Testament makes great pains to repeat this over and over and over again. I mean, you could say in a lot of ways, the Old Testament is one giant oath. That's what a covenant is, right? It's a life or death 
bond made in blood. That, that's, what a, that's what a covenant is. It's, it's the whole Old Testament, New Testament is based upon this idea of truth and keeping one's word. But per usual, what were the Pharisees doing to this clear teaching? And if you want to get, a, get an example of this, flip over to Matthew 23. By the way, one of the things that Matthew does is that sometimes he will drop a piece of teaching into the Sermon on the Mount, for example, kind of like a text, and then he'll go back later in Matthew and give us an example of that being lived out. And that's exactly what's happening in this in Matthew 23. So, so listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the goal sacred? Now, helps to kind of understand just contextually a little bit about what's, of what's happening here. What was the loophole that the Pharisees were attempting to exploit? They knew that the highest, so here's the difference in a vow and an oath. A vow is simply a pronouncement or a commitment, I'm going to do something or not do something. An oath is the thing by which you swear by, right? And so you might hear people say, I, I swear by my children, right? Or I swear on my mother's grave. Don't swear on mom's grave. Don't, don't do that, right? Well, that's what the Pharisees would do. They would swear by a sacred object. And so one of their favorite objects was, of course, the temple, right? What's more holy than the temple? And they would say, by, by the temple, I will do this or I won't do that. But if it was really serious, they would swear by the gold of the temple, right? Or they would swear by the, the, the altar. They, 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 you know, it, it's, not only do I swear by the temple, I swear by the, the gold that's in the temple. Now, why would they do that? To get around the law. So that if they changed their mind, if they decided they weren't going to keep, it, keep their word, if it was inconvenient, if it was hard, if the claim was going to be too much, it was going to inconvenience them, they might say, well, you know, I, I pledged by the temple, but I didn't pledge by the gold of the temple. You know, I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I made that promise. It's not valid. And you can imagine just the sorts of chaos this resulted in in relationships. They were making truth a mockery. They, they, they weren't intent on keeping their word and being truthful in the innermost parts. They were more interested in the loophole that lets them get around the thing they knew they were supposed to do. So go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, Jesus gives some example, other examples of things they also swore by. Sometimes they would swear by heaven. By, um, in heaven's name, or, or they would swear by earth, or they would swear by Jerusalem. Apparently, some of them would swear by the hair or the non-hair on their head, whatever the case may be, right? And Jesus says, in a sense, cut it out. You are playing fast and loose with the Word of God. You, you think you're being cute, but you're mocking God. And he says, and he reminds them, isn't heaven just the footstool of God? Isn't Jerusalem the great city of the king? What, what, what's he saying there? 
Because you think you're being cute. You think you're bifurcating the spiritual and material realities in your life. But you need to know something. God is everywhere. God is in the mundane. God is in the spiritual. God cares just as much for your truth-telling at work as he does with the Christians in your life and community group. God, God, God is not segmented over here. We can't domesticate God. That's Jesus' point. God is everywhere. He's sovereign. His presence is everywhere. So stop playing games. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. No, no tricks. No loopholes. Now, how does all this relate to marriage and divorce and remarriage? Interestingly, culturally, we still have two vestiges of Christendom that sort of endure. Sort of that, that Christ haunting that kind of lays over the culture where, we're, where, we, where we've cut ourselves off from the source, but we still have the vestiges, the forms of it. There's two places where we take oaths in our culture and still invoke the name of God. One, of course, is in a court of law. So you put your hand on what? The Bible. Pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What? So help me God. What are you doing there? You're taking an oath to God before God. But the second, of course, is in marriage. And whether you go to a Christian marriage, a non-Christian marriage, people who believe in God, don't believe in God, this is just one of those vestiges that sort of endured over time that somewhere in the ceremony, regardless of what people believe or don't believe, you're going to hear some sort of reference before what? God and these witnesses. This is why marriage has traditionally been a public act because it's done before God, it's done before witnesses. And what you're saying when you're marrying someone is that I'm making a vow not just to this person, but more importantly to God. That I'm going to be faithful to this, the wife of my youth or the husband of my youth, till death do us part in sickness and in health. See, so when you break the seventh commandment, and remember I said this, this Luther talked about this. See, all the commands are tied together. And you can't, it's like a ball of yarn. You can't pull out one without pulling out the whole thing. And you can't just simply look at the negative. You have to look at the positive aspects of the commandment. But you, you know when you break the seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery, you're also breaking the third commandment. What is the third commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we typically think that means, oh, that means we, we don't curse, right? We don't say GD or any of those other wordy dirge, any, any of that stuff. We don't invoke God's name. That's not the main point of the third commandment. See, what the third commandment means is don't invoke God as your witness and then go against his word. That's taking his name in vain. So when we take our marital vows before God and before these witnesses, and when we do forsake the wife of our youth, you realize we take the Lord's name in vain. Do you realize that when we walk away from the faith, 
we take the Lord's name in vain? Why do we do baptisms publicly? Because we're invoking God as our witness. Luke invoked God as his witness this morning. I'm following Jesus. This is what we all do when we are publicly professing our faith and being baptized. So it is very appropriate in, a, in the church context when people begin to go astray, when people begin to forget their vows, when people begin to turn their back on the Lord for us to say, brother, sister, don't you remember that day? When you stood before the people and you stood before God and you professed your faith, I want to remind you of your vows. I want to remind you of your word. Brother, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because where, where in your life is God's name sort of a vanity for you? Where, where in your life is there some place where Maybe you're doing the lip service, but your heart is far from God. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with friends. Maybe, maybe it's just with, your, with yourself. You're not being honest with yourself about where you are and what you truly want. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Guys, it's very appropriate to say as we prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning is that Jesus doesn't keep us at arm's length with these things. He doesn't say, I know you've really messed up. I know you've messed up your marriages. I know you've messed up your relationships. I know you have kept your word. When you figure it out, when you clean yourself up, then you can come back up here. Guys, that's not the gospel of grace. It's actually the reverse. Jesus says, I know you haven't kept your word. I know you haven't pursued integrity in your relationships and your marriages. That's why I had to come and die for you. Guys, do you realize well, two interesting facts? One, I, as I was researching this, the average person lies about 200 times a day, right? And you may be like, no, I don't. It's only 50 or whatever it is, right? But if you think about it, let's be honest. We traffic, right, in half-truths, exaggerations, and lies. But do you realize Jesus never lied once? But not only did he not lie to check off the box, he pursued truth. He was committed to his word, Jesus had made an eternal covenant with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that I'm going to earth, that I'm going to set my face as to Jerusalem. And that even when the tempter, like Satan in Matthew chapter 4, comes into the wilderness and says, save yourself, don't worry about these people, save yourself. I'm keeping my word. I'm keeping the counsels of my eternal relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. I'm dying for those people. You've heard me say this before. You could stop preaching. You, you could preach some of these texts, but apart from the gospel, they would be absolutely despairing. But remember, Jesus doesn't just give us ethical teachings. He says, I've come to lay down my life when you fail in them. 
the only prerequisite of coming to me is to know that you need me, is to know that you need grace. So I'm going to ask you just to spend a minute or two preparing your hearts as we come to the table this morning, trusting in Jesus. And as you're doing that, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.